0: Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Sid Trivedi, partner at Foundation Capital. Sid's experience has run the gamut from public to growth to early stage, affording him a unique perspective on how brand leaders are built and sustained. He started on Wall Street at Barclays Capital, then worked as an investment professional at STG, and then shifted into venture. Before arriving at Foundation Capital, Sid was an investor at a mid-year technology ventures where he invested in and counseled early-stage enterprise software companies. Thanks for joining us, Sid. Thanks so much, Raul. So we'll get to how to break into venture in a bit, but to begin, what attracted you to venture? You were on the path of investment banking to PE. Why venture for you?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. You know, I think for me, the excitement in venture started off very, very early. And you know the story, but, but for your um, listeners- I had this unique opportunity where my dad worked at Nokia in the early, you know, early, the late 90s, mid to late 90s, all the way to the early 2000s and well past it. And back then, Nokia really changed the way that we interacted with technology. It moved us from the desktop, from the computer, the PC, to the mobile phone. And for me, I got to see that whole transition happen in my home because my dad. Worked at the company well before mobile phones became big and, you know, he was still at the company well after they became really large. And through it all, I got to see every iteration of the mobile phone product. He was one of the early testers of every single Nokia phone between, you know, mid-90s all the way to 2010-2011 time period. So that was a lot of fun. I got to see the impact that that mobile phone had on average people. You know, whether that be my friends, our, family friends, our You know, other adults, just a shopkeeper down the street. It was just amazing to see that change. And I realized, oh my goodness, technology seems like a great place to to spend some time in. At the same time, I had a mom who was working in finance. So she actually did start off in investment banking, similar to me, and then moved to credit risk. She was one of the early banking managers in in India well before kind of banking was, well, females were in leadership in banks in in India. And that was a lot of exciting, uh, very exciting for me because I got to see this you know, this experience on the finance side and the impact that finance had on large companies. So so I'd always thought as a kid, oh, maybe I'll merge my dad's kind of exposure that I that I got to technology with my mom's exposure that I got on, on the finance side of things. I didn't really know about venture back then as a kid. And we moved ar- around a lot in all of Asia. And I kind of got out of high school in Singapore. So there wasn't really a big venture community out there. But when I came to Cornell, that was when I really learned about venture capital. And together with a close friend, we went and co-founded this club, which ended up working with venture firms and their portfolio companies at at Cornell. And that's what gave me this impression of what venture capital was about. That was really the, the, the primary driver for venture. And as a result of that, I kind of thought about, hey, how do I get into this market full time? And it was very clear to me that to be able to be a good, successful investor in venture capital, I needed to understand how big companies operated. And both investment banking and private equity allow you to understand operations at scale. And that was the reason why I started with that as my initial career post undergrad. I didn't actually think that I would get into venture this early. An opportunity arose, and that's part of the reason why I ended up there. And I've really enjoyed kind of getting that exposure. But I think those early formative years of understanding how big companies operated has ended up being very critical in understanding which early stage company will be helpful both in terms of figuring out which company to invest in or not but also post that investment we as venture capitalists end up doing a ton of work around helping the company succeed and that ends up being very critical to be able to know what are the things that matter for large companies and
0: how you apply that at the early stage. So, given your exposure to Nokia, I have to ask you which mobile phone was your favorite? Personally, for me, it was the N95AGB in black. <laughs> it's a good question. My favorite uh, phone was the Engage,
1: okay. uh, which was the first mobile phone that had uh, gaming on it. Uh, I was a big Game Boy user. My dad got me a Game Boy Color. You know, well, I think it was like ninety nine when I got my first Game Boy. But the engage just, you know, it added on mobile phone capability with color focused gaming. That was very exciting. It wasn't the first phone I had. I think the first phone I had was a thirty-three ten, which, you know, I think the only game there was snakes.
0: The batteries uh, do last much longer than the phones now though. The batteries yes, that's that's true. <laughs> Now coming back to breaking into venture, it's a hot spot and some of it can be attributed to the glamorization of the startup universe, but many business school students are looking to break in and are unsuccessful in their attempt. How did you break in and what advice do you have for others that are looking to break into venture capital? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think that The truth of the
1: matter is the total venture capital community in the United States is roughly about 4,000 people. So it is a really, really small community. And maybe 1,000 of those roles are associate roles, which are the first starting roles that you can get into post an MBA or an undergrad, depending on when you're getting in and what position you're getting in at. And as a result, there's just so few opportunities. So there are two things that end up being really critical. One is having some level of connections to actually go and even speak to these venture capitalists. And I think if you're able to develop a rapport with a couple of venture capitalists, it'll allow you to get that initial exposure to the venture capital ecosystem. The second is obviously having some unique edge, whether that is a unique network that you have, That could be a school network, it could be an industry network, it could be an operational role network. That ends up being very critical in allowing you to source early opportunities, but on top of that, in allowing you to help startups that you are invested in scale over time. Now, the goal is you wanna be. Known as somebody who is really strong in one network to start with, but over time you want to develop multiple other networks. And once you're in the business, you'll get the opportunity to go and do that. And over you know multiple decades, you will build a better network in lots of other categories. But you need that first core network that allows you to scale and that allows you to get that opportunity.
0: So on the topic of operational experience, how much value do you think operational experience adds? and, Although this would be somewhat of a biased answer, can you be a great investor without operational experience? Which also leads me to ask, what qualities make for a great investor in an era where you'll often hear the phrase, most VCs destroy value thrown around? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. And you're right, It is. it may be biased. Uh, and I think part of why it's biased is because you know I have spent mo- all of my career focused on finance and investing. I have not gone and done the operational role. Now, my personal view because of that is the relevance of the operational role has decreased significantly over the last three decades. Three decades ago in venture, that was very, very critical. And I think it was critical because technology was not moving as fast. Today, technology has moved so quickly that it makes it very difficult to apply your operational experience, even if you have gotten it at a very, very senior level for a long enough period of time. Typically, you will get two or three years of good value from your operational experience, whether you're an SVP at a big public company or an early sales engineer at a startup before venture. And the reason that that's the case is because everything in technology is changing and as a result, every single role is changing. I'll give you a good example in enterprise software. Typically, you would sell enterprise software through a field sales approach, which is you had salespeople with backpacks go Two customer sites and go and make one big presentation, and you'd normally send 20 salespeople to go and figure that out, and they would have another 30 or 40 prospects at the company who would help them to do that. That has changed as the internet has moved right? As we have gone more and more uh, used to actually doing transactions online, that has also impacted how we sell business products to enterprises. Today, not only is the field sales approach taken, there's also an inside sales approach and an internet sales approach. Inside sales is salespeople will dial to specific customer prospects and they will record that in a CRM. And internet sales is you will actually market to the the businesses directly through the internet, through advertising on the internet, whether it's Google or some other closed source channel. That has completely changed the way that an SVP of sales may or may not be useful from a big enterprise company. So part of this is this view that when you look at the vast majority of strong venture investors, you will find that, if they do have the operational experience, that ends up being less and less valuable and the investing experience becomes critical. And if they don't have the operational experience, they're still very good investors. And, you know, I'm lucky to see a couple of them over the years. Bill Gurley, obviously being a, a big name in this space and benchmark, who doesn't have deep operational experience. In fact, he has none. He's a finance guy and, uh, and has ended up being a very, very successful venture investor.
0: In regards to your background with enterprise software companies, many software startups do want to follow the SaaS model and sell into enterprise. I was having a conversation with Harry Glazer from Periscope Data about this, and he mentioned that it can take a long time to sell into an account. From the point of starting the conversation to actually selling, what are your thoughts on ventures aiming to break into enterprise accounts? So it really depends on how you're selling your product. It depends
1: on the complexity of your product. If your product is uh, technically complex, you you typically will need a field sales approach. You will need to go and send people to the side of the customer. You will have a long and elaborate POC process. What will normally entail is that when you go through all that elaborate process and typically that sale cycle goes somewhere from 9 to 12 months, you will end up with at least a six-figure deal, if not a seven-figure deal. So it is a very large sale when it happens. Now the, the the negative is obviously that those the sales cycle is so long and the deals are so lumpy that it makes it very hard to project revenue over you know early years. As you go further as a company, it becomes easier because you have larger dollars from a starting revenue perspective and obviously more cash in the bank. The inside sales approach, which is one of you know typically having deals between fifty to two hundred thousand dollars and typically trying to do those all over the phone or online. The advantage of that approach is normally the sales cycle is a lot shorter. So it's normally three to six months. And the only way that it ends up working is if your product is not technically complex, whether it be at the implementation or the deployment or the actual use of the product. If it is easy to understand and explain uh, on the phone virtually and through messages, then it ends up being possible to do that. The easiest of all that is the internet sales approach, and specifically the part of the enterprise market that has been gaining a lot of steam in this space is a developer-focused approach, the developer-focused strategy. And the companies like Twilio and Stripe that have gone and implemented that strategy, and there the focus is let's sell directly to the developer. Let's forget about the IT team or the VP of engineering, the CTO, all those people don't matter. We will go to the individuals, you know, whether it be me or you, and we will say, hey, this is the product that we have. You can download it immediately. We'll give it to you for free for X number of days or X number of uses. And then after that, you can pay a small fee that you could charge on a corporate credit card in an amount that you're allowed to actually transact in. And the idea is that if you have enough people from the company who are excited about the product, then you can actually go to the VP of engineering or the CTO, whoever runs that business unit and say, hey, you have X number of people at your company using this. Why don't you go and buy a site license? Why don't you buy an enterprise license with us? That approach is obviously worked successfully enough that there are a ton of other enterprises that are using it. The necessity there is obviously the, the product has to be simple enough for an individual to use and deploy quickly so that they can see value
0: almost immediately. So I want to touch upon the current economic climate for a bit. A lot of chatter on rate cuts and strong fluctuations in the public markets. When is the right time for an entrepreneur to raise capital, and should they be cognizant about the macro climate? Is that something that you look at when you're investing? Yeah.
1: So I think the the, the most important thing, if you are raising your first round of capital, is you need to spend less time focusing on whether this is the right time economically to go and build a company. I think if that is your first question that comes out of of your mind, then it's probably not the right time for you to build this company. You are building it for all the wrong reasons. Typically... You will build a company when you feel you can actually add a lot of value. Normally it's some burning need that you feel you need to go and change the market that you have seen. A lot of times you've actually experienced that market. Maybe you've experienced it at a company. Maybe you've you've experienced it as a person and you are trying to change the way that business is done in that market today. That is truly the, the unique value that you can provide. I think that whether that happens in a bad economic environment or a good economic environment is truly irrelevant. You have to have that inkling and that desire to go and build a company. And what I tell founders who are debating whether to go and build a company today or not, in fact, I had this discussion earlier this morning, actually with a repeat founder, who was deciding on this third company. And I said, you know, you have to really, really think, is this the opportunity you want to go after? because today you can, you can make that change. As soon as you take investor dollars or you start hiring employees, that's when that option goes away. And it doesn't really matter what else you're thinking about. Whether the market is exciting or not to others is irrelevant. Can you fundraise? Honestly, it's irrelevant. What's relevant is do you care about this opportunity that you want to dedicate at least the next 10 years of your life, maybe more to it. If the answer is yes, then you should go and start the company, and you should spend less time worrying about whether the economic cycle will be there or, you know, wh- what part we are and whether there are rate cuts or not all those things become irrelevant. What I will say though, from a venture capitalist perspective, when there is a downturn, what typically happens is that during the upturns, you have a ton of people who are very, very excited about building company for exactly this reason, that the economic cycle looks very positive. And they don't actually think about why they wanna build a company or why they are the unique player to actually build a new company in that market those people normally go away during the downturns. And so the number of good companies relative to bad companies, that ratio becomes very, very interesting. It's a lot easier to go and find good companies during down markets. And you can see that in terms of the years that many of these companies were founded. Companies like Nutanix, which today are public large assets, were very much founded during the last economic recession in the 2007 era when it was very difficult to find capital. And part of that was because the founders end up being ones who are truly passionate about the market focus that they're going after and can build a company around that vision, regardless of whether the economics make sense or not at the time.
0: If you have an entrepreneur that has checked that box of knowing that, you know, this is a problem that I want to solve, it's something that, you know, I faced myself... And I really do want to devote the you know next X years to this. What are you looking for specifically when it comes to seed rounds? What level of validation do you like to see? Are wireframes of some application enough for you? Or do you want to see further validation? Yeah, I think it depends on the area that you're going after.
1: So we at Foundation, we do four big areas of focus. Enterprise software, where I spend all of my time, consumer, fintech, and frontier tech or deep tech. And within each of those categories, it ends up being important or not important, which parts of, you know, whether it be market, team, product, and metrics or early customers are important. And specifically in enterprise, if you are looking to raise your first round of funding, you normally need to have a market identifier, You need to have a team that really understands the market and provides unique vision to that market. And you may or may not need to have a product in place. I think the reason that there's a may or may not is sometimes those markets are so so nascent that it's very difficult to build a product. And sometimes a team is so strong that you can raise the capital regardless of, of whether you have a product or not because almost every investor thinks you will build a product as long as you have the capital. But ideally, you want to have... Each of those three done. And even better yet, if you can get a customer or two who's in POC, that is fantastic.
0: But it's not a requirement. So naturally, you'll spot holes in a pitch or see that a specific venture might not return capital for any number of reasons. At what point are you as an investor comfortable devoting time and capital given the inherent risks in a venture that you might see?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I'll say this for the seed stage, given that's what we focused on till now. In the seed stage, you end up making the decision on whether to invest or not, normally because one of those four criteria of market, team, product, or early customers slash metrics ends up being very, very exciting to you. At least one thing has to be exciting, maybe two, maybe three, but at least one. And that one thing ends up consuming your time as an investor's perspective. And you realize that this company is going to be the unique opportunity that's going to go after that. It's hard to say when you make that switch between you know just looking at the company and actually saying, we're going to make this investment as a, as a team. But it typically happens after a couple of meetings. So typically... Somewhere between two to three weeks, you'll have a very good sense spending time with the team that is this something you want to devote your time to? Our goal at foundation is try to come to decision quickly. And my goal specifically as an investor has always been after every single meeting with a company, do I want to go and continue to spend time? Because partly I'm wasting my time, but more importantly, I'm wasting the founder's time. Do I want to waste their time with me? If the answer is that I'm still not sure that I should, you know, that we should be making an investment here, then most of the time I will tell that to the founder and I'll say that I'm going to stand down for this round for these, you know, one, this one reason or these two reasons. And I'd love to take a look at the next round, but I don't want to waste any more time. So I evaluate that on every single meeting. But we as a firm try to evaluate that within the two to three weeks time frame.
0: Within that process, how do you vet first-time entrepreneurs? What are you looking for in the individual or the team? Yeah. So you know,
1: it's funny. They're first-time entrepreneurs who can be coming out of college or business school. They're first-time entrepreneurs who are SVPs of engineering or SVPs of product or technology at some of the largest Fortune 500s. The truth is you have to vet them the exact same way. You have to understand why do they want to build this? What unique insight are they bringing? Do they have sufficient passion to go and build a company? And sometimes even with those SVPs and VPs and EVPs from the Fortune 500, it's very hard to answer that third question. That third question ends up being very, very important. You have to be able to see that vision and passion in the person, at least for the long-term. Because once you invest in them, you're in that company for at least a decade. Our average whole period here at Foundation over the 25 years that we've been around is about 10 years. So as a result, we're very cognizant that once we make the investment, we're gonna be there for for a very long time. So we need to make sure that this is a team that is in it for the long run. And that is something that I look at very, very closely.
0: So specifically within your world of enterprise software, does the significance of that question of why they wanna build that company come, does that come down a little bit because I mean, I, th- I think it's safe to say that a lot of these entrepreneurs within enterprise software weren't really born with a passion for these enterprise software companies. You know, they've worked at some Fortune 500. They saw a problem that they can solve, and their client base comes out of people that they've interacted with. In the healthcare side or, you know, consumer something, it's a lot easier to say, you know, I faced X problem, so I'm going to create this company based on that, and you're passionate about something, you know. Maybe someone in your family has been affected by something within the healthcare space, and you decide to do it for that reason. But does that question lose some significance when it comes to enterprise software?
1: Honestly, it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because when you think about it, the same questions apply in enterprise. Most of the founders I meet with end up having spent some amount of time in a large business. And that's where they face the problem. Maybe they're facing the problem as a developer where they're trying to build a certain type of you know, data flow or a database, or they face it as a security analyst where they're trying to interact with you know the existing solutions and they're not getting the same level of insight as they need. And that ends up pushing them to build a company around that whole idea. So the idea is essentially, you know, the vast majority of us, we spend half of our time in the office and as long as you're doing that you're going to find problems in the office the same way that you find problems in the home so the same way that you may find issues around how food is delivered you're going to find same the same level of issues around how infrastructure is managed or how we are whether we are productive or not productive and that ends up pushing you to design new and creative ways and new and creative technologies which ultimately hopefully end up disrupting the existing paradigm of enterprise software companies. So I think that motivation has to come from within and it has to be connected to something that you're doing at, at the in the workplace in
0: your existing environment. Now that you've seen many pitches from motivated entrepreneurs that really want to build a company and, you know, really push a specific solution to the market, what are some of the most common mistakes that you'll see in the pitches from first-time entrepreneurs? Yeah. So I think
1: there the, are the, a couple of things. Firstly, my recommendation has always been to come in with a pitch deck. There are some entrepreneurs who don't, and they'll come and give you a, you know, a, a general discussion. And, and those are helpful, but they're not valuable because you're not able to actually get their frame of mind. It doesn't show preparedness on your vision. Ultimately, you want to come into a meeting with a crystal clear vision around you know, what you have built till now, what you envision of building with this additional capital, and how much capital you're looking to raise. Doing that in an off-the-cuff meeting where you're just talking back and forth ends up not being the right way. What ends up happening is the investor can take that meeting any way he or she wants. They can push it one way or the other. Maybe they'll drill down the product and they prevent you from talking about the market. Or maybe they drill down the market and they prevent you from talking about the team you've assembled. By having a set of slides, you're able to go through A manner of vision that you want to go and present to the uh, venture capitalists, that I think is a significant advantage. So my first goal would be come in with a pitch deck that is planned. The second probably most important thing is come in with some type of clarity of thought around vision. And that is essentially what market is it that you're going after and what product you want to build in that market. It's amazing how many founders don't do that. They come in with a very broad market vision and don't think through very clearly what they're doing differently from the existing players. The third connected to that vision statement is really understand who are the existing players in your market. Most astute investors we'll have a pretty good understanding of what's happening in the space that you're looking at. As we're seeing technology permeate into more and more verticals, each of us as investors are starting to specialize and spend more time in sub-verticals. And as a result, when we come into a meeting, we normally already understand that space. So the broader market question is something we likely already agree with, because that's why we're taking the meeting. What we want to understand is, you know, who are the different players that you are concerned about and what are they doing and what are you doing that's different? That ends up being very critical. The Probably the fourth big irritation from time to time that does come up, more so here in the Valley, is people will give a range for the amount of dollars that they're looking to raise. You know, I've seen this so many times. It happened earlier today, for example, where somebody will say, I'm raising between two to five million. That to me doesn't show a very clear understanding of what Exactly, you want to build. If you are raising two million dollars, that's a very, very different company twelve months or eighteen months from now than a f- company that's raised five million dollars. So come in with a, a perspective around how much capital you're looking to raise and what you want to do with that capital. And that's not a. The requirement isn't to go and build a detailed financial model. It's to go and understand who you're looking to hire and where do you want to be in eighteen to twenty-four months and how much money do you need to get there. Those four big things are the things that I would
0: focus on. Now, something that you've advised is for entrepreneurs to understand how they're different. How different is different enough for you? And I know that's somewhat esoteric in a sense, but, you know, there's always this concept of like incremental innovation versus a 10x solution. How different is different enough from your experience? The question is a good one, but
1: the fundamental difference ends up being explaining the current set of products look like. What are their specifications and what are the additional or different types of things that you are doing. And it's not so much a question of having more difference versus less difference, it's of having an understanding of what the players are doing today and what is a unique thing that you're gonna do differently and why is it so hard for the existing players to do that? And whether that is, hey, we are building on top of a new infrastructure platform and that's why we're gonna have better performance or more security or more access, I mean, that is a big core difference. The other difference could be, hey, we're going to add this additional layer of features, which may or may not be difficult to do, but perhaps they're very difficult to do because it is cannibalizing an existing set of customers that your competitors cannot, you know, do not want to cannibalize. They've struck certain partnerships which prevent them from going after a certain uh, set of features that you are going to go after. So the question of what is more different what is less different is actually more so around first understanding who are the competitors what are they specifically trying to do what are you doing and how difficult is it around what you are doing versus what the competitors are doing
0: for them to catch up to that level one of the difficulties that entrepreneurs often have especially first time entrepreneurs is even getting an introduction to a venture capitalist to build a business so how does one set up a meeting with Sid Trivedi and pitch him the next unicorn? Do they just like really stalk you while you're going to get your coffee or just a little bit easier in the valley? But on a more serious note, for entrepreneurs that are building, say, somewhere in the middle of the country, which are not technology hotspots that are traditionally known, um, how does one get an introduction to a venture capitalist or set up that meeting?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is is you go through mutual connections. Um, I mean, Raul, you've done this for, for me. You've introduced me to, to founders who who you've met, who you've been very excited about, I try to spend as much time as I can with a diverse set of people. And that hopefully allows me to see a diverse set of opportunities. I think that is one way. The second way is absolutely, if you send me an email, you shoot me a LinkedIn request and you send me a, a reason around why you're building a company, and it's a couple of sentences, maybe at most three paragraphs, I will read it. I read almost every single inbound email that comes to me, even if it's a cold email including every single LinkedIn message that comes to me, as well as also Twitter messages. But the ones that end up being most interesting if they're inbound are the ones that are explaining exactly what it is you're going after, why I'm the relevant person to talk to around it, and why they feel that the team feels they're going to be unique in that submarket. So I think whether you're getting an introduction through a mutual connection that, that you know both you and the venture capitalist has or if you're going and, and you're actually just pushing to them and and i'm taking an inbound request just a cold request whether it's an email or a linkedin message i think you will get a response i think the level of whether i'm interested or not will depend on whether it's interesting to me and i, I think it's relatively easy to understand in today's world what excites certain venture capitalists versus others? And I think you have to go after the set of venture capitalists who are particularly excited
0: about the market that you are going after. So speaking of the market, you had mentioned you know, aspects to be cognizant of before, be that the team, the product, the actual market. Do you place more weight on one over the other? So you know, in the case of Andreessen Horowitz, we've specifically seen verbiage come out from there that market is the most important out of all of them. So do you specifically place more weight on one over the other?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I try not to. I think I am somebody who spends a lot of time understanding the markets that I'm investing in and the sub markets that are important in that. So as a result of that, once I've understood a sub market, whether it be in cybersecurity or logistics software, then I end up going and trying to find out all the companies that are going after that sub market. And I have a Reasonably good thesis around why that submarket is exciting. I spend lots of time with repeat founders, and there the the sell is really around team. My bet is that that repeat founder who may have sold their company for somewhere between 50 to 200 million will the next time go and sell it for well over a billion dollars. Or somebody who has taken a company to a billion dollars will take it to 10 billion dollars. That's a very, very different sell. And there I'm very open to the market they're going after and the product they're looking to build. At time to time, I will put more emphasis on product. Those end up being ones where I have a very, very good understanding of the existing product set. So there's probably six or seven products that are available. There's a defined budget in enterprise available for those set of products. And there's a clarity around what is missing with the existing products. That's when product ends up being more important. I think on the metric side, because we at Foundation are investing so early, metrics never end up being the main reason why we invest. Uh, Those end up being very important at the Series D or E or subsequent rounds, but at the Seed, and A and series B rounds, they end up being important, but not necessary.
0: What is the craziest pitch that has ever been made to you uh, in your career so far? Oh, that's a good one. Is there one that stands out specifically over the others? Uh,
1: crazy in terms of I was amazed uh, or or I was very I negatively impacted. I say you were impacted. shocked. <laughs> a shocked in a positive or a negative way? Uh,
0: positive or negative, take it this okay. way.
1: So I think uh, I'll, maybe I'll give you a negative one first. The negative one was a founder. Uh, this was a pitch done over video conference. This was a time when Zoom was not as big. So we are using WebEx. And the founder basically went on presenting his pitch the same way that I would exp- uh, recommend your listeners to have a pitch deck in place. But as soon as I asked him a question, he said, let me finish my pitch. And he kept repeating that. So I didn't get a chance to actually ask any questions. And it was amazing to see a founder essentially go in verbatim, say, you know, what he believed and not take any input from the investor in terms of, hey, but you're not answering this or you're not answering that question. That was it, was, it was shocking to me in his inability to take any level of feedback. And it became very apparent that if I was to invest in that company, it would be impossible to work with this founder. So I think as I connect to the the point around, you know, my earlier point around making sure that you actually uh, have a pitch deck and a plan around what you, where you want to take that meeting. At the same time, you have to be open to moving around to that plan. And that was a great example of somebody who was not open to any level of feedback. And obviously, the negative impact it had on me. I think um, where I was amazed, I mean, there's so many cases where, where I've been amazed by pitches. Probably for me, one of the more amazing things was a Cornell founder Shashank Samala, who's the founder of a company called Tempo Automation, who's actually also a classmate of mine at Cornell, in his case, I spend less time in core infrastructure, which is actually in the chip business. And it was amazing to to hear Shashank's pitch and then go to a factory where I got to see that pitch actually being implemented. And this was at the Series A round. And so they had one line in the factory and it was still very, very early days. But it was just very, very cool to see Shashank and Jesse and Jeff, the three co-founders, actually walk me around and say hey you know our primary business is we are building pcb circuit boards in within a day to two days and we are going to actually go and show you that we can do this right now and by the way you know how we told you we have no we hold no inventory there's no there's no warehouse out here like we don't have an ability to store anything we get it on the day and we print it and we, and we push it out. We deliver the circuit board to our customers. That was amazing in the sense that I got to see the deck and the actual product in person. And it's very unlikely in the software world for me to go and see that every day.
0: So a lot of individuals looking to start businesses have a plethora of ideas and often find themselves struggling to pick one. What is your guidance on how to approach that process? Yeah, so, so my general recommendation is don't sit around every day
1: and think about what is the new idea that you can go after. And it's funny because there are people who have successfully done this. Masayoshi San has publicly stated how he did this as a college student and actually was able to, to, to go in uh, and uh, get paid a quite, quite a lot of money, over a million dollars from his first invention. I generally would not go and sit and, you know, and brainstorm around new ideas that you may or may not like to, to go after. I think you have to go through your normal day of business, the way that you do, whether you're at a company or you're doing something else, maybe you're still studying. And I think normally the exciting ideas that end up being the biggest ideas hit you while you are just in the normal course of your day-to-day activities. And they hit you and they end up sticking with you. They end up sticking with you Maybe for the day, maybe for the week, maybe for the month, maybe for a full year, maybe for multiple years. Those end up being the exciting ideas that you go after. As you get more and more consumed with that idea and trying to fix that idea, that's when you realize, okay, maybe this could be a real business. And that's normally the time when you should start to think through, how do I go about building a real business?
0: So it's an interesting comment you bring up, and I want to ask you, there is, as you probably very well know, there's a lot of talk around, you know, if you have an idea that you're passionate about, go all in for it. For a lot of entrepreneurs that do whole day jobs, you know, have specific obligations just in life, family, kids, be there, whatnot, what is your guidance around making that jump 100% in? versus still holding the day job and almost kind of having a side gig that they transition over to 100%. Is there, you know, is one right over the other? I think neither is right, you know,
1: and, and there are examples of people who have either never had a day job or have quit their day jobs to start companies, and there are examples of people who have stayed in their day jobs and over time started a company. In the latter, there's lots of examples in the former case. In the latter case, one example would be one of my former bosses, Pierre Mediar, who's the founder of eBay, Pierre started eBay while he was still at his prior company and he built it, in fact, over time and it was profitable well before he even raised his first round of funding. But that was a great example of a person who went on their normal day job and realized this was a business that they'd like to dedicate their full time and their longer life to. My recommendation is until you are very sure that this is something you wanna do for the long term, I wouldn't generally leave your job to go and try out whether it's exciting or not. At the same time, I wouldn't be worried about having the fear of just purely losing a day job, a place to go to work every day, is the reason why you're not focusing on your startup. Now, obviously, you have to think about the monetary requirements of of working on a startup versus working in your existing day job. You also have to think about how that might impact your day-to-day experiences with your family, whether it's your wife or your girlfriend or You know, somebody else, your parents, um, your your kids, those end up being more important. Obviously, you have to make that determination if you want to be a full-time founder. But I think that is the core question. It's not a question around, hey, if I don't have a day job, my friends or my family won't respect me. That is less of an issue. I think you have to be less focused on what the society thinks about you as a founder, And just more focused that, hey, can I manage this monetarily and from a relationships perspective? And if that's the case and you're excited about it, then you
0: do want to transition into a full-time role. Given that you primarily operate within the enterprise software space, are there any sub-verticals that you're particularly excited about right now and why? Yeah,
1: so uh, the one that that I've spent a lot of time in now over seven years and has always ended up coming back and forth through all of my career is cybersecurity, and it keeps on you know being bigger and bigger. You know, I pushed out an article earlier this year stating that I truly believe that cybersecurity in the next, whether it's five or 10 years, will be the next trillion-dollar market, and part of the reason why I believe that is, as we are seeing more of our interactions moving online from the physical world to the digital world, the necessity to secure digital world the same way we do the physical world will become more and more relevant. So today, you know, the US spends well over $2 trillion uh, on physical armies, physical defense, is there a question as to whether a portion of that will go into the digital world? Absolutely, and I think that the answer is most likely it'll be you know well over a trillion dollars. Today, cybersecurity spending is roughly about 125 billion dollars a year, and as a result, you know, can we see a 10x increase? Yeah, I think so. And and there, I'm very
0: very excited about the cyber world and multiple categories within it. So onto the business of venture capital, there's common talk about a lack of quality deals floating around, and every fund seems to be chasing the same deals with additional players on the field now, including hedge funds, family offices, etc. How do you compete for, quote-unquote, the best deals in this era? And to that extent, do you see the VC model evolving at all due to competition?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that... (laughs) See, the capital has always been in large amounts, even, you know, in the late 90s, there was a ton of capital and there were a ton of VC firms. And I think that is true today, you know, as, as we are in 2019, 20 years later, I think what differentiates firms ends up being a couple of different things. One, I think experience ends up being very, very critical. You know, I tell founders that I meet with that at Foundation, we've done just over 200 investments, of which 28 have gone on to be public companies, a little bit over 70 have been successful on many outcomes. And almost always, they will focus on those two things. And they say, wow, that's a great track record. And I and I remind them that the reason I'm seeing that is because when you add those two numbers up, there are still 100 companies where we didn't actually have a positive outcome. And there's the learning from those 100 companies where we didn't have a positive positive outcome that ends up being ever more important in every single new investment we make. If the hope is that you learn from your mistakes, and hopefully we've made a lot of mistakes over the last 25 years, that we can at least skip the ones that are basic mistakes in our mind. What differentiates an older firm like Foundation, and maybe there's about two dozen of us in, in, in the market today who have that level of experience and those level of years out here in Silicon Valley is that because of that exposure and because of that experience built over, well over two decades in the business, when things are going well as a company, we are cautiously optimistic because we know that things can go go badly very quickly and we know that things, randomly something will pop up. Maybe a key customer decides to renege on the contract. At the same time, when things are going badly, we're cognizant that there might be a, a positive silver lining in the future whether it's in a few weeks or a few months or, or a year, because we've seen enough of those experiences of companies not doing well and then pivoting and becoming very, very successful companies in our portfolio. I'll give the best example of Netflix, which over the you know past 20 plus years now has had so many different iterations as a product. And each iteration has ended up being more and more valuable. And today, the Netflix of this world, which is well over $300 in market cap, is very, very different from the early days when we were an early investor in the company. So I think that that learning and there are so, so many others of it, the 200 learnings end up being very, very critical. And I think that is one way that we differentiate as a firm in terms of our historical experience. What I try to do specifically in enterprise software and specifically in se- cybersecurity and IT and differentiating is in providing unique value add. And one example of that is in the deep customer network I have. So I have well over 100 uh, CISOs, chief information security officers, CIOs, chief information officers, CTOs, chief technology officers, and VPs principally at Fortune 2000s, who have been close friends and, and friends for years and years, You know, some of them a decade, some of them you know a little less, but the advantage of that is that there are people in large companies that I truly know, and I understand what their needs are, and I use that effectively when I'm talking to early startups in a couple of different ways. One, in helping me with diligence when I'm looking at those startups. Two, in understanding what are the themes that those senior customers rely on. And three, in helping my companies, once I've invested, go and get that early revenue. Today in enterprise software, it is so difficult to get access to the Fortune 2000 that the first five to 10 customers that you get end up being very, very critical. And what I am able to today effectively sell to founders is that I can help you go and find those first set of customers. Uh, and I've done that enough times that I've helped to generate millions of dollars in revenue at the early stage for those startups that are in our portfolio that I can go and say, hey, why don't you go and ch- talk to this CEO and he or she will tell you about how I've been he- able to be helpful there. You know, And then there are lots of other ways. There's hiring. You know, I, I spend a lot of time tracking candidates, and we as a firm do too. There's a ton of help that we can provide around fundraising and how to go and raise up subsequent rounds. And obviously, we help you to think through you know, what your scenarios are. If you decide at some point whether to take the company public, sell it to somebody else, you will see all of these opportunities happen over that journey. And we try to be as helpful as we can in the, along the way. And because we've had that experience, we've built that do, that understanding around what to do in each of those situations.
0: So many entrepreneurs actually refrain from starting hardware businesses. You know, hardware is hard and software has some obvious benefits. Software businesses can scale much quicker, scale faster, and the barriers to entry are much lower. Although you are principally a software investor, what are your general thoughts on software versus hardware? Do you believe there's enough innovation in terms of actual atoms versus bit, because we've seen some interesting hardware companies, quote unquote, come out, Casper, Allbirds, et cetera. Just want to get your high level thoughts on that. I
1: think the, the opportunity in hardware is still there. The reason that people get less excited about going after hardware is that you need to raise a lot more dollars to actually show value. And that is very difficult to do. Obviously, it's always, you know, even though there's so much of capital, it's still difficult to fundraise. And I think that that is the the clear point that I tell to to founders who are trying to decide whether to start a company or not. But from a hardware software perspective, it ends up being a question around what you are most excited by. If you have domain knowledge in, in hardware, then you should go and pursue your opportunity in hardware. And if that domain knowledge leads you to go and focus on an area, then go after that area. Spend less time on the software bucket. Don't purely make a decision on whether to start a company based on this point that most venture capitalists will only invest in software companies. Uh, we at Foundation, we've made both hardware and software investments. And on the hardware side, we've made investments on the enterprise side, and then we've also made investments on the consumer side in hardware. So we have companies like Cerebras and Graphcore, who are actually building the next generation chip. We're going after the Intel NVIDIA business, which is also hardware play. Uh, but we also have direct-to-commerce companies. We're going at building some new type of, you know, whether it be consumer product
0: um, or product for the enterprise. Given that you've lived outside the U.S. before, I wanna get your thoughts on venture outside the U.S. A lot of what we'll see are copy and paste models imitating U.S. businesses and growth markets, how do you feel about this at a high level? And do you look outside the US yourself for potential deal flow given the exciting things going on in some of the growth markets?
1: Yeah. So maybe I'll ask uh, I'll answer the
0: first question. So I think the the, the first question
1: around you know, how is a venture evolving in the outside US ecosystem? I would say very positively, innovation and entrepreneurship has permeated well past the borders of Silicon Valley. And I think if you are a young engineer, or a more senior developer, and you're thinking about a new idea in a country that isn't the United States, I think you will find relatively quickly that there are opportunities for you to go after that idea without having to move to Silicon Valley. And we're seeing this more and more. There are less founders moving from their countries of origin to just the United States to go and and build companies. Now, obviously, there will continue to be people who come to uh, to Silicon Valley, and we see this every day. But... The level of opportunity outside the U.S. has actually increased. I think in terms of whether those ideas end up just being copies, yeah, maybe about 10 years ago they were. I'd say in the last five years that has dramatically changed. When you go and look at some of the ideas, they're so different from the existing solutions out there that they end up being so, so, so unique in their approach. I'll give you a good example of Paytm in India. The product itself of mobile payments is something that does not exist here in the United States. Many of us can't even fathom what that entails. The fact that you can use your phone to pay to a shopkeeper at a stall on a street corner is amazing in itself. I think that those approaches are so different and they're so local in nature that this direct carbon copy of a US-based startup in an, in a, whether it be an Asian or, or European or African or another region environment is unlikely to happen.
0: What is the greatest deal that you've missed out on and how did that miss change your perspective in relation to investments thereafter? There's so many
1: deals that I've missed out on that, that it is amazing to, <laughs> my list of probably misses are probably significantly higher than the ones that I do. And that's part of the business, right? I, I, on average, I will look at about a thousand companies and you know hopefully we'll make an investment in somewhere between one to three of them every year. So <laughs> the rate of missing out on, on opportunities is high. Probably one example of a company that is now past that unicorn status, you know, over a billion dollars in, in valuation, is a company called Auth Zero. And this was a developer-focused Security strategy. It was an authentication like so. It was essentially providing authentication capabilities directly to the developer. I think you know I, I looked at the company in its early days when it was you know a couple dozen employees and looked at it in two different rounds. Even in the first round that I missed, it was clear to me that this was going to be a billion dollar plus company, and in in cybersecurity. And there are very few of them that have that capability. You know, I think the, the the big learning for me through that process. So the first time, it the process, the, the first round that I looked at with that company, the process just ended up moving too quickly, and we as a firm couldn't make a decision fast enough. So, so for the second round, what I ended up doing was I ended up spending a lot of time with the CEO at the time uh, between the the closing of that of the round that i looked at in that that second round of closing that I looked at subsequently. So by the time we were looking to actually make that investment, it was very, very clear why we were making it. We ended up preempting that process and we ended up losing on valuation. And I think this is a great example of don't make a bet. If you think a company is going to be a billion-dollar-plus company, don't have your reason for passing based purely on valuation. and I think that was a mistake on our part with auth zero and I wish that I'd been able to convince my partners and I had a strong enough opinion around the fact that that valuation we could increase it by you know a certain amount and that increase I think was maybe it was like a somewhere between a fifteen to twenty percent increase in value and it was amazing because within Less than 12 months, the company had increased fivefold in valuation, and I think those are the examples when you kind of look at and you say, "Oh my goodness, like clearly we made a mistake." But there's so many more of those that I think you know I, I could sit down and give you 50 different reasons for why I've, I've made a mistake on on, on passing in around. What I try to do, at least with the companies like auth Zero where it was very clear later on that this was a miss, is I tried to go and analyze what was the decision-making that went on, both in my head and in my partnership's head, as well as how was I communicating that whole process? And what can I improve for the next time around that this happens so that I'm much better and we as a partnership are much better at making a decision. At the same time, I will say though that the the focus is less so around making sure that you make every single investment that you're particularly excited about and, and more so around just making sure that you get to see all those companies. I think once you get to see the good companies, the chance of you missing out on every single one of them decreases. So my focus has always been around making sure that if there's an exciting company, that I am getting that opportunity to go and look at it.
0: That was Sid Trevetti, partner of Foundation Capital. Sid, thanks so
1: much for joining us. Thanks so much. And thank you so much for for building out this podcast, Raul. It Has been a, a good listen.